I'd like to invite one of our own members, Robin Johnson, to come forward as she is going to be reading scripture for us this morning from the Gospel of Mark. The reading today is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verse, beginning at verse 20. You'll find that on page 696 of the Pew Bibles. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone <clears throat> in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. This is the word of the Lord. Christmas is a time for family. There's no place like home for the holidays. Given the stereotypical image that you associate with this time of year, the manger scene of Mother Mary, Father Joseph, and baby Jesus gathered together, how could Christmas not be a time for sharing with family? It's interesting to me how you always picture a group of three when you ponder that first family. I'm here to tell you that the circle of our family was a lot wider than you often remember. Yes, there was Mary and Joseph and Jesus, but please don't forget that there was also Joe Jr., Judas, not that Judas, Simon, a couple of sisters, and me, James. I was the second-born son, James, the stepbrother of the Jesus you know. You picture my brother in a manger with a halo over his head, and sure, Jesus was a special child. He was wise beyond his years. He always had a knack for telling a good story. And yes, he had a certain charisma about him. People were drawn to Jesus at even a young age, but he was still just a boy. 
You know, he did manage to get in trouble now and again. I remember the days when my big brother came late for dinner or forgot to do his chores. One time we all went on as a family on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover. We, we did it all the time, every year. And except this time around, Jesus decided to stay behind by himself. After a day into our journey back, my parents suddenly realized that Jesus wasn't with us. And you know what? The whole extended family, grandparents, cousins, aunts, and uncles, all of us, we headed back to Jerusalem to find Jesus. Three days later, three days after frantically searching, do you know where we found him? Sitting in the temple, listening to the teachers of the law, asking them questions. Jesus was actually surprised that we were looking for him. When my mother and father finally found him, he just looked at them and said, where else would I be? Didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? Now, you'd think an incident like that would get you into quite a bit of trouble with your parents. I mean, you're not supposed to leave your family behind. Families are supposed to stick together, aren't they? But did Jesus get anything more than a scolding? Oh, no. He was the firstborn, and you know how it is with firstborns. They can do no wrong. They're the favored ones. We all know it's true. They always do everything right. They're constantly lifted up as the standard for the rest of us to follow, to be like, why can't you be more like your brother? Well, your older brother would never have done anything like that. If you're wondering what it was like having Jesus for a big brother, let me ask you a question. How can one possibly measure up against the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world, or as I always called him under my breath, the miracle baby. <laughs> Do you know how many times I've heard that story? Do you know how many times I've heard that story? The angel, the dream, the stable, the shepherds, the star, the wise men. You remember that story every year with songs, with decorations, with cards, but I had my fill of it by the time Jesus was 12. <laughs> the one thing Jesus and I did have in common was we both grew up learning our father's trade. Our father, Joseph, trained us to be carpenters, craftsmen. We were taught how to work with wood and stone, how to, to shave it or chisel it down, how to refine or shape it into something useful, into something stable and reliable. Our father lived long enough to share that with us. His calling, his expertise, his gift, and then suddenly he was gone. Life changed quickly after father's passing. Jesus became the man of the house. It was up to all of us to care for our mother, but it was up to Jesus, the firstborn, to show us the way. Nothing brings a family closer than the loss of a loved one. We held on to each other as we labored to keep the family business growing. We, we took jobs where we could get them and we worked together to support our mother and our sisters. It wasn't easy at first. There were lots of adjustments that had to be made. But eventually, over the course of years, we found our rhythm. And it was a good life. It was not the same without Joseph, but we were still a family. And then it happened. I'll never forget that day. I'll, I'll never forget that day that Jesus came and told me he was leaving. 
He said he had to go out to the Jordan to see John. Now, we had all heard about John. I mean, he was family after all, one of our cousins. With his parents long having since died, the news about John was that he had gone a little bit out of his mind. Word got back that John had moved out into the wilderness and was dressing himself in camel hair and living off of grasshoppers and honey. He was preaching. Preaching not in the synagogue, preaching not in the temple, but preaching out in the desert. He was preaching about the coming of the Lord. No one had heard a word from God in over 400 years, and John was out there in the desert having talking as if he was having daily conversations with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Needless to say, I did not understand why Jesus was heading out there. It's no small journey from Nazareth to Jordan, but my brother was insistent. He just kept saying, the time is at hand and my father is calling me. I tried to talk some sense into him. Jesus, our father's been dead for many years now. Besides, if he's calling you anywhere, he's calling you here with your family. His response? You don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. And then he left. Just like that, he left. He left me in charge. I became the head of our family. We didn't hear from my brother for weeks after that. The last thing we did hear was that Jesus got baptized by John, just like many other people had, except we were hearing stories that when Jesus came up out of the water, the weather changed and somebody heard a voice. It was all really confusing. And after that, no one knew where Jesus went. There were stories of seeing Jesus walk into the desert with no food, no shelter. And later on, some of his disciples spread the story that my brother spent 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness wrestling with the devil, but I didn't believe it. It didn't make sense to me. Though I will admit, looking back, there was something different about Jesus after that. After his baptism in the Jordan and his time in the wilderness, well, I soon discovered that this was going to be the first of many new surprises when it came to my brother. There, next, there was the story about Jesus going down to Jerusalem and causing a scene during the Passover when he cleared the money changers all out of the temple. And then we heard these stories about him doing miracles up in Capernaum, healing lepers and casting out demons. And then there was talk of Jesus hanging out with Samaritans, the Samaritans of all people. And all the while, word kept coming back that he was preaching like no one else ever had. Everyone just kept going on and on about his wisdom and his authority. Needless to say, the next time Jesus came home to Nazareth, we were all very curious. At synagogue, Jesus read from Isaiah. He quoted some very powerful words of promise that God had made to us, his people, and he rolled up the scroll, waited for a moment, and he simply said this. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It made quite the impression on all of us. At first, everyone was celebrating and rejoicing this news of freedom, redemption, and reconciliation for the people of Israel that Jesus had shared with us. But then things turned ugly. As my brother went on, so my brother went on and he broke the cardinal rule of not keeping things within the family, within the family of Israel. 
Jesus started declaring that this good news of mercy and blessing was not just for Israel, but for her enemies, for the Gentiles as well. Jesus nearly caused a riot the moment he said that in our neighborhood. You gotta understand, family matters, are special. They're sacred. I mean, we, there's some things, right, that are intended, that are shared just with people in the family. Not outsiders, not even guests. Gentiles and Samaritans were not part of the righteous. The covenant promises given to Israel, everyone knew that. See, the thing is, if you're not special if everyone is special. You're not chosen if everyone is chosen. The people in my town nearly killed my brother for saying what he did. They, they almost threw him off the cliff outside of town. I still don't know how he got away from that angry mob, but he did. Now, around that time, King Herod arrested and imprisoned our cousin, John the Baptist. Now, you'd think that something like this happening might cause Jesus to back off a bit, to keep quiet and settle down. Well, not my big brother. Jesus just kept on going, preaching and teaching and healing. The crowds grew, the critics got louder, the scandals associated with his name increased. The word was, he was making friends and eating with tax collectors now. There were whispers that he was violating the Sabbath. Stories came back to us that out of his many followers, Jesus had decided to call 12 to be his disciples. He called 12, not rabbinical students, not scribes or Pharisees, but ordinary tradesmen and not even carpenters at that. Jesus called a tax collector, a zealot, and a bunch of fishermen. These were his chosen few. Rumor had it he told them he was going to make them fishers of men. What did my brother know about fishing? The more important thing was that Jesus wasn't just attracting crowds anymore. With the calling of his disciples, he was starting a movement. Whether he intended it this way or not, things were starting to get political. Herod had taken notice of John and his disciples, and look what happened to him. Jesus was starting to attract the wrong kind of attention. My brother was starting to get a reputation for making trouble. Word started actually getting around. The word was that the Herodians and the Pharisees, not exactly two groups that spent a lot of quality time together, they were plotting to kill my brother. That wasn't good. That wasn't good for him. That wasn't good for our family. But Jesus just kept right on going. Speaking out, crossing lines, rewriting rules until finally we all decided he is not in his right mind. Jesus wasn't thinking clearly. Anyone could see that. He wasn't acting wisely anymore. Jesus wasn't considering his own welfare. More importantly, Jesus wasn't putting his family first. Threats towards him were threats towards us. So for his sake and ours, we headed over to Capernaum to take charge of him. We were going to set Jesus straight and hopefully bring him home. Well, before we got to him, Jesus got his first visit from the leadership in Jerusalem. A delegation of scribes came to assess his ministry and his authority. The same kind of group went out to the Jordan to evaluate our cousin John. It was not a good sign. 
So the question they were supposed to answer was, how were people to understand all those miracles, all these signs and wonders, the healings, the casting out of demons, the way more and more people were attracted, drawn to him, despite his unorthodox teaching? And their verdict? Why Jesus was so powerful and yet why Jesus was so dangerous? Because Jesus, it was argued, didn't have a special relationship with our God. Jesus was in league with the devil. Just to be clear, my brother wasn't accused of being possessed by the devil. No, Jesus was charged with worshiping and serving a demon, and not just any demon. My brother was accused of being the patron of Bezizabulb, the archdemon, better known to you perhaps as the exalted Lord Baal, the false god of the Philistines. Later rabbis would call this demon that led many of our people astray in false worship, they would call him the Lord of the Flies. Now, I've told you my brother was wise and quite the storyteller. Well, Jesus, I'm told, quickly employed both of these gifts to reveal the flaw in the scribe's logic. A kingdom divided, a house divided against itself cannot stand. That's the image he called to mind. That's the story Jesus told. You see, when it's a civil war, when those who are supposedly on the same side turn against each other, it spells the fall of that kingdom, the breakup of that house. If the devil is warring against the devil, then it means the end of the forces of darkness. No, Jesus offered a different way to see what he was doing. He wasn't in league with the devil. He was infiltrating the ground of the demonic, the supposed strong house of the forces of evil. He was humiliating the devil by binding him up and taking back what rightfully belongs to God. The plunder of that which is evil, Jesus stressed, points to the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And even if the accusations of the scribes were true, it still meant the kingdom of Satan was falling while the kingdom of God was rising. And that was good news. That was what the Lord promised long ago. <laughs> what could the opposition say in response? It was pure genius, a, a brilliant counter-argument by my brother. But then, as he always did, he pushed things too far. He pushed things too far as then he started talking about the unforgivable sin. What he said here still has people talking. It still gets even you worked up. And you miss my brother's point if you think he was declaring that God is particularly angry at one sin, so angry that God refuses to ever forgive that sin. No, what Jesus was declaring to the scribes is that once you label the work of the Holy Spirit as the work of the devil, there's no way out. You've created a double bind. It's like a conspiracy theory. All the evidence will conform to your predetermined beliefs. You'll be blinded to the truth. In other words, if you deny the vehicle of forgiveness, you cut yourself off from the very possibility of being forgiven. Again, it was a sound argument, but I think we can all agree it wasn't exactly being diplomatic. I don't have to tell you that the scribes were heard gnashing their teeth and grumbling the whole hundred miles back to Jerusalem. It was right after this happened that our family sent word for Jesus to come outside and talk. I mean, given the scene that had just taken place, we tried to be a little bit more discreet to keep things quiet and unassuming. I mean, you know what I mean. We've all been there. Sometimes, as a family, there are personal matters that are better discussed in private. 
There's a need for a level of conversation and intimacy that isn't meant for everyone else's ears. <laughs> well, I guess someone forgot to tell Jesus. He wouldn't come out and talk with us. As we stood outside the door, as we stood outside the door, Jesus asked aloud as almost to himself, who are my mother and my brothers? As we stood outside the door, he didn't wait for an answer as he motioned to those sitting around him and said, these are my mother and my brothers. These are my mother and my brothers. You have to understand, family was everything back in my day. Family was everything. A family lived together, even after marriage, often in the same house. Family made their livelihood together, sharing everything. The business of the family was the life of the family. Your success or failure, your reputation, your influence, your future depended on the strength of your family. That's why we put such an emphasis on genealogies, where one came from, because your family was your identity. And it was one thing. It was one thing to ditch your family by staying behind in Jerusalem at the temple. It was one thing to go off, to take off and leave your family in order to go off on some pilgrimage in the wilderness. It was one thing to come home and pretty much alienate the whole town against your family. But it was quite another to cast your family aside. Here was Jesus, my brother, denying his own mother and siblings, elevating his companions over his own flesh and blood. We left together in tears. Mother pondered these things in her heart as she always did. But I was confused. I was furious. So much for a house divided against itself cannot stand. We didn't see Jesus for a while after that. He came back to Nazareth one more time. Once again, he preached in the synagogue and once again, our community, his childhood friends, his neighbors, they turned on him. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? People weren't all that impressed by his miracles much either. They'd heard stories of demons being cast into pigs, eyes that were blind being opened, the dead being raised, but all they saw Jesus do in our town was lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. And my brother didn't make things easier for himself when he openly remarked about our lack of faith as a community. And it was hard. Let me tell you something. It was hard not to take it personally when he said, a prophet is without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. Ouch. You know, there was one particular story that Jesus was telling everyone and everyone just kept repeating it. It was this story about two brothers, an elder and a prodigal. I asked him if that story was about him. 
if he was the prodigal, because I sure felt like the elder son, the responsible one, the one left holding the bag. He told me the story was about the father. He told me he only did what the father told him to do. And I responded, what father? Our father's dead. He left town again. And once again, we were left to deal with all the damage he'd done. We spoke with Jesus one more time as a family. It wasn't pretty. We didn't believe in him anymore. Not as our brother, not as our Messiah, and he knew it. We taunted him to leave Galilee and to go to Judea, show himself to the world, teasing him that anyone who wants to be such a public figure, anyone who wants to be such a celebrity can act in secret. We had no idea that Judea, Jerusalem, was where Jesus was headed all along. Everything happened so quickly after that. Jesus went to Jerusalem and triumphed, turned to tragedy. My brother, my brother got sold out. He got betrayed by one of his own. After Jesus was arrested, another one of his friends denied even knowing him three times. And the rest of his family, they ran for cover. They ran for cover as my brother was beaten, as my brother was mocked, as my brother was cursed and nailed to a cross. They bailed. Everyone except John. <laughs> John stayed to the bitter end. We were there as a family for Passover, like always. When we heard the news about Jesus, mother insisted that we go and be there. And I, 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 I took her as far as the hilltop where they hung him up there, but I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go any further. It's still hard for me to admit it. But I was ashamed of my brother. I was afraid to be seen with him. I, I did not want to be associated with his guilt. My mother went to the foot of the cross, but not me. I watched my brother die from a distance. I wasn't there for him. I chose not to be there for her, my own mother. But John was there. You can't imagine my guilt. When I heard Jesus turn to our mother and then to John and say, woman, behold your son. The very thing I had for years always held against my brother Jesus is what I was doing myself, abandoning my family. So the crowds looked up and they taunted Jesus, daring him to come down off that cross to prove it was all true by saving himself. I have to admit, I was praying for a miracle. I never believed in any of the wondrous things that people said my brother had done before, but now I wanted to believe it was possible. That he was who so many people believed him to be. But eventually he just stopped breathing. My, brother, my brother's body just took one last heave. His voice gave out one last cry. And then he was gone. He was buried, not with our ancestors, 
but in a tomb donated by one of his followers. Mother helped prepare his body before the Sabbath and we laid Jesus to rest and then we went home to mourn. Not long after, barely three days, word came back that his body was missing. Some people talked of seeing him alive. I just wrote it off as wishful thinking. Still, the talk of the sightings of Jesus persisted. More and more people claimed to have seen him, talked with him, ate with him. I didn't know what to think anymore. And then one day, my brother, Jesus, came to me. Peace be with you, he said. As I looked at him, I, as, I, as I looked at him, he was Jesus. The man I had known all those years, the one I had grown up with. But as I gazed into his eyes, I saw for the first time that he was more than my brother. He was my creator. He was my God in the flesh. Instantly I fell to my knees, my Lord and my God. I don't know. I don't know why I never realized it before. I can't explain to you why I couldn't believe it then, but I could not, not believe it now. All I know is that when he looked at me that day and said, James, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. All I know is as we broke bread together and drank from the same cup and he said, we have to celebrate and be glad because this brother of mine was dead and is now alive again. He was lost and is found. My eyes were opened. My heart was changed and I knew I knew, I knew that I had been the prodigal and the elder son. I knew that the story was, as he had always said about my father, my father in heaven who had loved me, who loved us all so much that he willingly came to die as my brother, Jesus. I knew that Jesus hadn't left home as much as I had finally come home. I had always believed, resented. I had always resented Jesus for continually leaving our family behind. But later on, as I gathered with the rest of his followers, including my mother in that upper room, as I looked around and took in all of us who were gathered there waiting for the gift of the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised would come to us, I realized that Jesus wasn't redrawing our family circle as much as he was making it wider. From staying behind in the temple as a young boy, from reading that scroll in Isaiah, from eating with tax collectors and talking with Samaritans to healing the sick and casting out those oppressed by demons and calling disciples, Jesus wasn't abandoning his family. He was adding to the family of God. And now he was inviting me to join him. On that day, oh, on that day of Pentecost, as I was filled with the Holy Spirit, 
I caught the vision, the vision of the kingdom, the Lord's vision for his people. All my life, all my training as a carpenter, as a craftsman, as a builder had led to that moment as my brother gave me his design, the design for building a family, for building his body. My sense of family, the love and loyalty that's required, the level of commitment and support that's needed, none of those things were wrong. But I now understood it was the limits that I was putting on who made up my family. That was my stumbling block. And it was a lesson I continued to learn. We all continued to learn. I don't know if you remember, but I was the first pastor of the movement, of the way, of the church as it got started. And our understanding of what it means to be the family of God was tested early on as we wrestled with the Spirit's call to embrace the Gentiles. Some wanted to hold on to the traditions of old, to make the Gentiles become Jews in order to be welcomed into the circle. But the majority of us clearly heard the Lord telling us that our definition of family was too narrow. The Spirit was leading us to set a bigger and wider table for his children. And so there was no longer talk of Jew or Gentile, but only of all being one. In Christ. Lots of people, lots of you believe that this whole holiday season is about being together as a family. And you're right. It is. But most people I've found still need to learn the lesson that I did. That everyone is a child of our Heavenly Father. That God's desire is for all to be in the family. Blood is indeed thicker than water, as you like to say, but it's not the blood that connects us by our natural birth that matters. It's his blood shed for us and for our sins that gives us our true identity, that is the foundation of our real family. We are called brothers and sisters by Jesus so that we might go and adopt others as our parents, as our children, as our siblings in his name. So many of you are working so hard to make and spend money. Standing in line or searching online for the perfect present so that you can prove to certain people in your life that they matter. That they're part of your family. But perhaps you're overlooking the greater gift you can give. The one that can't be bought or sold. The one that is freely given to you so that you can freely give it away. The greatest gift you always have to give is his presence, his invitation to come home for Christmas and to be a part of the family, his family. So I want to challenge you to look outside your circle. Allow your definition of family like mine to get bigger. There are so many people around you who are lonely. So many who have run away, so many who've been thrown away, so many who've been abandoned, rejected, divorced, or isolated from their fellow man. You don't have to go far, just outside your living room. You don't have to go far, just beyond the pew you're sitting in. You don't have to go far, just a little farther than the donut of fellowship that you share. And you'll find the homeless. Not just those people living on the street, the homeless all those who live without a sense of family, without a sense of belonging. 
So who will you adopt this Christmas season? What person will you welcome home for the holidays? There's no need for fancy paper or colorful ribbons. There's no price tag that can be put on the gift of being present, of being the presence of Jesus for another person. All it takes is caring enough to learn a stranger's name. All it requires is looking into someone's eyes as you listen, as you truly listen to their soul. Pausing long enough to hold someone's hand, to embrace them as a brother and sister, lingering in that moment, refusing the wrong of rushing and letting that person know that they matter, that they count, that they're worth stopping for. That's sharing the presence of Jesus. That's being the present of Christ. There's no need for more. The life that is filled with Christ is the life that is filled with gifts, gifts with received through him in order to be given away in his name. That's Christmas. That's Christmas. I used to hate hearing the story of how my big brother came into this world. Back then, I can tell you, I never imagined that people would still be telling it over 2,000 years later. But now it makes me smile. It makes me proud that you make such a big deal about Jesus' coming, because it is. The first and greatest gift of Christmas is God's own presence. Our Father blesses us by coming down. Our Father blesses us in person, through the person, your brother and mine, of Jesus. The present is his presence, of being made part of the family, his family. So Merry Christmas, or as I prefer to say to my brother, my Lord, my Savior, happy birthday, Jesus. Amen.